Hey folks, um, we're going to go ahead and get started. We're running a few minutes late, um, but thank you all for coming and welcome. My name is Lynn Lee. I'm president of the Marquette Neighborhood Association. And just to give you a little background of how this all came about, um, our neighborhood, the Marquette neighborhood, was really affected by the flooding, the Yahara River, the lake. And as our neighbors began to come to the Neighborhood Association with concerns and anxiety, uh, one neighbor in particular, Amanda White, uh, reached out to me to maybe start working on a forum of flood prevention. And so we reached out to the Sassy neighborhood, the Tenney Lapham neighborhood, and this we had our first meeting about a month ago. Fifty people showed up, and we decided to continue. Um, and have this meeting. I would like to uh, point out Amanda White is at the front table up here. Uh, she's been the driving force behind this. Uh, she's done a great job. She's worked hours to get this pulled together. So if we could all give her a round of applause, I would appreciate it. So uh, tonight our moderator is Renee Lauber. Uh, she's a member of the Market Neighborhood Association Board of Directors. Uh, we're going to have a few presentations, um, then questions to the panel. And at this point, I think I'm going to hand it over to Renee Lopper. Thanks for coming. Okay, well, thank you, Lynn, and thank you to the Marquette Neighborhood Association, the Sassy Neighborhood Association, and the Tenny Lapham. Neighborhood Association, which all have worked together to put this event on. Um, my job is to kind of keep this moving and keep things on time so that um, we can get out of here at a reasonable hour and get a lot of information. Um, there's a couple things. Uh, we had about 30 people submit questions in advance that we already have. If something comes up, these are at the door. Um, you can feel free to fill one of those out and submit that at the back table, and if we have time, we'll take a look at them. Um, and then there's also kind of the next steps, and that's the yellow sheet. So you can fill that out and definitely leave that with us, and we will take a look at those also. Um, so let's just kick things off and get started. Our first speaker is John Reimer. He is the Assistant Director of the Dane County Lakes and Water Resource Department. Um, his technical background has focused on modeling and analysis of watersheds, rivers, and lakes. He is responsible for lake level management. Good thing that you're here, um, including aquatic plant harvesting and operation of the three dams on the Yahara chain of lakes. So, John, thank you very much for coming. All right, thank you. So today what I'm going to give is a little bit of a background of kind of our Yahara lakes. Um, I'm hoping then that gives you some sort of background. It's, it's a little bit... Um, general at the beginning to give you guys an idea of, the, of our system, and then I'm going to go into a little bit more details of the tools we have, and then finally about the 2018 flooding, which I'm sure that's why most of you are here. So um, I just want to give a little bit of a background, and I think it's going to feed a little bit into our next speakers as well about what, what they have as well to contribute. So um, as you know, here's our lakes. Um, this is Dane County, Lake Mendota, Monona, Wabisa, Kaganza. Um, our, our four lakes, um, we do have Wingra on the side, so we do have the five great lakes of Dane County here. Um, so what is our system here? It's impacted by, obviously, rainfall. Um, 
And as that rainfall happens, as you know, our, our lakes rise. Um, and for, before they rise, though, some of that water becomes infiltrated into our ground. It goes into our ground. Some water then, and that affects our groundwater levels. You may see basement flooding because of, of groundwater um, increases. Um, and the water that doesn't infiltrate goes into the lake as runoff. So, um, but what has happened over the years? We have all this development. And specifically, I wanted to look back and say, okay, 2017, we did a map of what it looked like for development. I know it's, it's small to see on the side. All that red shows the urban development. We look back at 1970, what that looked like, and did a comparison between the two. Between 1970 and 2017, you can see the colors here. The blue represents 1970, and the red then is the areas of today. Of course, this doesn't explain, um, this is just area. It doesn't, it doesn't show that areas have become more highly developed. Um, before, they may have been low developed. Now, they're big buildings, a lot more pavement. Um, but overall, this shows the area. Or in other words, from 1970 to 2017, um, there's about two times more area of, of um, urban area. So, which means, for people that um, are unfamiliar, what does that mean in 2017? Today, if we have development with this house, you see this arrow here of runoff, a bigger arrow than what it was in 1970, this arrow smaller. So when we have development, we have more runoff, uh, more impervious surfaces, less um, area for water to infiltrate into the ground. So what does that mean for our lakes? That means this arrow, the infiltration gets smaller and our arrow of our runoff gets bigger and it comes in faster. Um, but also to, comp to add to this, as you know, there's been differences in our rainfall patterns. So um, there's a report done by Wiki, Wisconsin Initiative on Climate Change, showing that we're getting more intense storms, more rainfall. Well, what does that mean? This arrow now of our runoff is getting even bigger. So we have more water coming into our system than we have, have had in the past. Um, and that's what we call, in general, is the hydrology kind of of our lakes. There's, there's more intricacies, but in general, that's kind of a framework. And the other component when we look at the lakes is the water movement through the lakes, which we call hydraulics, which determines the flow. How much water is going to move through the system? So you see these arrows of the, of the watershed, a lot of flow coming in, but what about the flow leaving the system? So um, when, we look at, when we look at the hydraulics, you know, we look at different, different factors, and some of that is related to um, the area, the cross-sectional area of the, of the river, what's the slope of it, how much friction there is. So these factors all determine how much flow is going to happen. So I'm just going to give three examples to show. So one is sediment accumulation. So in our rivers, We've had an abundant amount of sediment accumulation. Went back and looked at Exchange Street, all these bridges along here, and the 1981 bridge plans. And if I look at that to 2005, um, the last survey we had, the, the um, bottom changes of the, of the, uh, of the um, riverbed has raised two feet. So we've lost two feet of, of area we used to have from 1981 at, the, at this location. So what does that mean? We have less area of river flow, 
means we have less flow. So less area, less flow. So another component is what we call constriction points. So, and these are bridges along the stream and, um, or along the river. So here's Babcock Dam here. Water flows through these bays here. And um, what do you see with this, with this river geometry here? Here's Highway 51 right behind it. So you see the flow would flow through these bays here. And one thing you may see is the abutment of this Highway 51 bridge is blocking this bay. It's very common along the Hoyahara River. We have our dams. They're wider than what these constriction points are. So a lot of times these dams are wide open, but it's not the dam that's limiting the flow. It's what we talked about before, the sediment accumulation, or in this case, the constriction points. So um, what does that mean? You know, less less flow overall. So then these arrows here are just getting smaller and smaller. Um, another component that we realize is a big factor in the amount of flow we can deliver is aquatic plants. And when we have aquatic plants in the river, they have more friction, more resistance to flow. So if we harvest them, use our aquatic plant harvesters, we can increase the flow. Um, there's times when we can't. Um, the water depths are too shallow. We can't get our equipment in there. Um, but in general, the aquatic plants reduce the amount of flow we can have in our system. So what you see here is the amount of water coming in, big arrow, the amount of water leaving our system, smaller arrows. So we can't overcome the amount of water coming in with the water going out. Um, to, to evaluate this, we have observation stations. We have uh, models that look at this, um, hydrology models, lake and river models. Um, we integrate these models together. I'm just going to go very briefly through this. Um, we call this Infos, which is, there's a website here. I'll let you guys explore this on your own, which brings together observations, models. And overall, this is what we call Infos, bringing everything all together so we can use it um, to make our decisions. And some of that um, decisions and new developments we're working on, which we're all here for today, is flood risk and forecasting. So um, I'm not going to talk too much on this, but we utilize the models. Here, for example, is we take rainfall from one spot, move it to another, and look at our risk of flooding. So this is called storm transposition. In fact, Ken Potter was going to talk. He's the pioneer of this. Um, but in general, what we've looked at is not just moving the rainfall on one lake, but what does it impact other lakes? Um, when we look at the system, we manage it as a full system. So um, in general, uh, what we find is, you know, Mendota here um, is more at risk for big events. Monona Wabisa is at risk of all the small one, two-inch rainfalls because they just can't get it out. It's the small rainfall events that really impact Monona, mainly because of its urbanized area. Um, but in general, we're using these tools. How can we forecast it? Um, provide you guys, the public, the information of what we expect for, for flood levels to be. Um, this is in development and, and working on this to help bring this information to you guys so you guys are aware of what we expect to happen. Um, so this is a quick summary, then I'm going to get into the 2018. Basically, we have these models to look at the flood risk. But why do we want to do this? How can we mitigate our vulnerabilities or these homes that are flooded or these places that are susceptible to flooding? Um, flood forecast, why do we want to do that? To improve our preparedness. 
So these are kind of the goals of why why we utilize these tools and want to bring this to you guys to, you know, to benefit from it. So lake level management, um, we have three dams, Tenney Dam, Babcock, La Follette, um, that we um, that we regulate those dams. 2013, we rehabilitated Babcock, La Follette. These are now not using human power to remove stop logs. They're automated with, with stop log gates, so we can change these more near real time. If something happens on a Friday, we're not waiting until Monday to make a change. We can make this change near real time. Um, in 2017, we did the same thing with Tenny. So this one was all upgraded um, in 2017, and we have a system then that we can change the lake levels um, remotely and more timely. So, and there's regulations with dams, um, emergency action plans that we have to keep up to date. Um, so this is here's a graph. I know there's a lot of lines on here, but this is a graph of lake levels, the top one. And I'm not going to show too much details, but in general, what I want to show you is you see these, it may be hard, there's dashed lines here, which represents the summer max, summer min. But in general, this is Lake Mendota, so these colors represent each each lake, orange, purple, green, pink for these each lake. So this is water level. So what you see here for Lake Mendota is what? It goes up, down, up, down, up, down. Um, and this is in the wintertime. The flow here, or this is the water level, and um, this here represents the flow. So for us, when we manage the lakes, of course, we all look at lake levels, but for us, the solution of lake levels is driven by how much flow we can move through the system and how much flow is coming in. So for me, you know, the flow is an intuitive thing, and what I did here is I translated this to maybe something a little bit more understandable. So flow is represented as cubic feet or a volume per time, second. So you can imagine we have all this volume of water, and what I did is I translated this per year, volume of water per year, and then looked at the lake area and said, well, how much would the lake level rise per year if we completely closed the dam? To give you guys an idea about how much flow is moving through our lakes. Um, so let me get to that one. So what that is is this here represents that. So, for example, 2008, I just highlighted this one here. Um, and Lake Mendota is this orange one. So Lake Mendota in 2008 moved 19 feet of water through its lake. Meanwhile, you see it moving two to three feet. So flow is a critical piece of the puzzle about how much we can get through the system to, to minimize water level fluctuations. So here we had 19 feet. I highlighted this 2011 one. You see 2011, we're staying all within within the regulatory orders, and Mendota, for, for example, moved 12 feet of water through its lake. So a lot less water coming in. 12 feet of water of that lake came in, and we moved it through. On the other hand, we had 19 feet in 2008. This year, we're, we're going to exceed this 19 feet pretty easily. We'll be probably 20, near 25 feet on Lake Mendota. So... Um, so flows are a critical piece of when we talk about lake levels. It's flows drive the solution. So 2018, I'm going to show this one here. This is what 2018 looked like in, in May. We were two inches above the summer minimum starting off. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, before that, Babcock and La Follette 
um, were wide open since April. So completely open, actually throughout this whole time period, all the way since April. Prior to that, they were wide open since August of 2016. So the lower dams, Babcock and La Follette, are mainly utilized in drought conditions to hold back water when we get a really dry conditions. Otherwise, these dams are pretty much wide open. So there's kind of a false sense that we should open up the, lake, the dams and we'll reduce water levels. Well, these are pretty much open all year round. We're limited by the river and the flow and the constrictions and the plants that really limit how much water we can move. So um, in 2018, here's all the lake level. Here's the flow. Here's the lake levels. But in general, what do we see? We see lake levels increasing. And from our perspective, we manage it as a system. So, you know, probably your perspectives are Mendota, Monona, but in July of um, 2018, actually Kaganza was really high. We set a record on, on Kaganza in July 2017. So preceding that, what happened was we hit this record here in July, but preceding that, we cut plants down here. We didn't have a permit to do, though. We got an emergency permit. We'd never have cut here before. We increased the flow two times by our cutting. Then we came in, and prior to the peak, there's this railroad trestle um, filled with rock. Here's a picture of it. We removed 31 dump truck loads of rock prior to this event, um, and we got the flow up the most we've ever seen before by, by doing this. So, But yet, nonetheless, we still hit a record high in July on Lake Higanza, seven inches above the 100-year. Meanwhile, what was that doing for the rest of the lakes? We're holding back water, helping Kaganza out not to suffer any more flooding. Um, but then come, come September, all these lakes are high. In fact, what you can see, all these lakes, we're managing them all together, trying to everyone to feel the same feeling on these lakes. Kaganza's really low because we, we moved a lot of water there. But meanwhile, the rest of the lakes are really low. Um, and what do we do here? We initiated our emergency action plans. We started working 14-hour shifts to cut weeds. We removed 92 dump truck loads in five days. We were, we were given everything we could to get the flow out of the system. Um, then when this happened, we kept getting more rain. So then we were deciding how much flow can we get from Mendota to the Monona. We got flash flooding in the Isthmus. So we started turning our dial back and forth. When is it raining? Okay, let's slow down the flow so we minimize flash flooding. Okay, it's not raining, turn it back on. And that's how we, and if you look at the graph here, all this up, down, up, down, that's from us manipulating it, trying to help with the flash flooding, helping with the flooding in the Isthmus area to minimize as much as we could. Meanwhile, Monona would be so. We just can't get the water out fast enough. So, so basically we hit now... New historic highs with Bisa and Monona um, 10 inches above um, during this event. So we hit two historic highs two different times um, this year. Um, so looking forward, what are our next steps um, to flood resiliency? When we talk about flood resiliency, we talk about how can we reduce the number of flood disasters? If it happens, how can we recover quickly? So to do this, um, we're organizing a technical team to do a review. What are the different options that we should think about, consider? Um, put it together for the public, for you guys, to be able to see, decide what makes sense, what doesn't. Um, and then that information will be brought 
during a community engagement process for people to voice their opinion once we know what happens if we remove constriction points? What happens if we lower the lake level? What does that mean for Lake Minona, Lake Wabisa? What does it mean for the overall system? So we want to put this together so everyone is informed, educated on, on what different alternatives mean for our system. So those are our next steps. Um, I think that was it. <laughs> Thank you. Our next speaker is Ken Potter. Um, Ken is an emeritus professor of civil and environmental, environmental engineering here at UW-Madison. Um, he has quite a long bio, but I will just uh, kind of wing it and say that um, he was the advisor for my grad school practicum a long, long time ago. And um, Ken is just the go-to guy, um, definitely in Dane County, probably in the state of Wisconsin for um, any kind of hyd hydrologic risk, um, especially flood risk, stormwater management modeling, that kind of thing. So thank you very much, Ken. Well, while, while I'm waiting for John, I want to thank John for uh, saving me some words tonight. He did a really good job, and I'm going to skip through some slides. Uh, John made one mistake, though, John. Uh, okay. I didn't invent strong transposition. Actually, it was invented by somebody named Arthur Morgan back in the 1930s, who did probably the most comprehensive flood control project by far at the time on the Miami River of Ohio. I don't know how many are familiar with that river, but it was very flood prone, and he did a, a watershed treatment for that. And then he went on to be the head of the Tennessee Valley Authority, first head of the Tennessee Valley Authority. So. We're borrowing some old strategies, which is always a good thing to do. So I'm going to uh, – I want to begin – first I want to say I've been here for over 40 years, and this is the worst flooding I've ever seen in Dane County by far. Uh, we had a bad time in 2008. We haven't had the groundwater flooding this year that we've had, we had back then, but <clears throat> this, is, this is the worst. And, of course, a lot of the flooding had nothing to do with the lakes – uh, Middleton, uh, Cross Plains, a lot of a lot of bad things happened there. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to stick to just discussing the lakes. Uh, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, and here's a slide provided to me by one of my colleagues in civil and environmental engineering. On the left, you see what happened, and the you don't the key is that the rainfalls go here from six to fifteen inches. So the colored ones, the light. Uh, pink. Okay. Okay, all right. The light, uh, the light pink is uh, is uh, six to nine, and then nine to fifteen is the darker. And what actually happened is on the left. What could have happened is on the right. So it, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, so um, John mentioned that uh, the the causes why we have so much trouble. One is rainfall has been increasing. And, uh, and here are the lake levels, annual maximum lake levels, and then here are the rainfalls. So this is, uh, this is for the whole Midwest, and so this is a, a, a regional phenomenon. It's not just here, and you can see that increase over time. And this is for the whole United States. So this is, a, this is a, almost a continental thing going on. There's no question that intense rainfalls are increasing in magnitude and frequency for the, most of the globe. And it's clearly a result of uh, greenhouse gases. Okay, so uh, John did a good job of explaining the, uh, what urbanization, the problems associated with urbanization, how it increases the amount of water that goes into the lake, and obviously impervious surfaces are the key. Uh, 
One thing I want to talk about that John didn't, it's sort of been a pet thing of mine ever since I've been here. In glaciated area like Dane County, northern Dane County is glaciated, we have, we have watersheds which don't drain naturally because the, the glaciers drop sediment and block the drainage. And we call those uh, closed depressions, internally drained areas. Often there's a pond, goose pond. Those of you that are birders, any birders in the room? Goose pond is one of those ponds, though these, these areas do have been drained over time by farmers, for example, and certainly when they urbanize. And uh, this is a rough map showing the, the largest areas in the Yahara watershed. And the county is actually working on on mapping these closed depressions for the entire county, and it's taking a while. It's taken over a year because you have to go out and, and look at every one of them, figure out where are there pipes that might be draining the water. So they're producing a comprehensive map that's really important. And this is it for the entire county. There's large parts of it that are not finished yet, but you can see the magnitude. There's a lot of land in the watershed that at one time was closed, and a lot of it has been drained. And, and that's a big problem uh, because you're increasing the area of land that's contributing, and, and often when you do that, you're urbanizing. And so we have a number of these in, in the Madison-Middleton area. So I, I've been on the Water Resource Commission for Middleton for 40 years, and there are some ponds there, Stricker Pond, Tiedemann Pond, uh, Esser Pond, uh, Junction Neighborhood. You can see Esser Pond. Esser Pond used to dry up all the time. It was just a puddle. Now it's a huge body of water. And, and all these ponds, as, they, as they've filled up because of urbanization, have been drained into the lakes. And we can't continue to do that. Okay, that's my big thing. We've got we've to stop doing that. We have to disconnect some of these. And I think that all can be done. It, it's really essential. Uh, one I didn't mention was Dunn's Marsh. A lot, a lot of you probably know Dunn's Marsh. Dunn's Marsh was a marsh. Now it's a permanent pond, and it feeds Nine Springs Creek. It's the headwaters of Nine Springs Creek. And it's taking all that water from Shopco and all those things on the highway, Verona Road. So, so that's, a, that's a real issue, and we can, we can fix that. We can uh, disconnect a lot of them, but we can't. One thing we can't do is to, is to develop and close and open these large uh, internally drained areas because then the problem is just going to get much more difficult. Here's uh, just a little evidence that uh, uh, a few years back, um, the South Fork of Pheasant Branch, it was a large section that was closed, a significant percentage of the watershed, it was developed and drained into the South Fork of Pheasant Branch. And this illustrates the impact of that. What I have here is a ratio of the storm flow, and storm flow is the part of the flow that results from storms as opposed from groundwater. So it's a ratio for that pheasant branch to Black Earth Creek, which is pretty much undeveloped. And you can see that sharp increase. That, that almost certainly is due to the fact that we, we uh, opened a previously closed area and then developed it. So we, we have to stop doing that. I had the pleasure of chairing a committee about a year ago to look at improving our stormwater ordinance. And, and the, the, the main result of that was that we should go to 100% volume control. That is, when we develop, we should control to back what it was when it was undeveloped. And um, we, we had a lot of ways of doing it. One way was to, was to use uh, volume trading, or, or another way to think of it is fees in lieu of. If, 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 a, 
if a project can't really efficiently do that, they would pay a fee and we would, for example, do something in the watershed that would compensate for that. Uh, unfortunately, right at the end of the legislative session, uh, in its wisdom, the legislature um, made that illegal and basically said that uh, no community can regulate beyond the DNR rules, even though the DNR stormwater rules are for water quality. They're not for flooding. Okay, the stormwater rules DNR did came out of the Clean Water Act, Federal Clean Water Act, for, and so it was strictly for water quality. It, there was no intent in the DNR rules to deal with, with flooding. And so uh, that's something I think we have to fix or look at really carefully. Uh, these are some stormwater management practices that we can use to reduce volumes. I think a lot of you are familiar with some of these. You, this is uh, uh, the bottom middle one is uh, the green roof on top of City Hall in Chicago. A very nice, clever approach to doing this. Uh, you, you're probably all familiar with rain gardens, bioretention areas, and so on and so forth. So we need, we really need to do these. And with that, uh, I'll turn it over. I'm, John did such a good job that uh, I didn't have to uh, provide a lot of background. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Um, just moving things along. This is great. We're going to have a lot of time for questions. Um, our next speaker is Jojo O'Brien. Um, Jojo has been, she works for the City of Madison, correct? Um, she's been the city's project manager for planning and building resilience for high lake level flooding since 2017. She's a design engineer in the city's stormwater engineering section and focuses on stormwater modeling and design projects that help control runoff and improve water quality. Thank you, Jojo. All right, so since everyone, is everyone here from Madison? Can you raise your hand if you don't live in the city of Madison? Okay, only a few people. I've broadened out a little bit to talk, but I think um, John and Ken covered a lot of issues outside of the city of Madison, so we're gonna kind of narrow in and see what the impacts of the storm that occurred on August 20th and the flooding that followed, how that impacted the city and how the city responded. So we're gonna talk about why the isthmus in particular is at risk. Um, we're going to talk about what happened. We look at the flooding that started on August 20th as two separate events. So one led to flash flooding on the west side, and then all that water ended up coming into the lakes, and that was the kind of slow onset flooding from high lake levels that John was talking a little bit about. So we're also going to talk a little bit about how those maps that were created came to be. Um, those were created by me and my colleagues, and I'll walk you through that process to explain a little bit better the background of those and then the city protocols for flood response. So we're gonna kick off with a little history lesson. Um, the isthmus, as you can see in the middle of the map here, was developed on top of a wetland. Um, a lot of the area in Madison previously was a wetland. Um, can you guys kind of see those splotches through here? So these are all low-lying areas. This is Madison in 1906. You can see the development expanding. And then you can see Madison today. Um, so the areas in green here are areas that historically were flooded. These are mapped as hydric soils. That's telling us that at some point the soil was saturated. And that then tells us that these areas generally tend to be at higher risk for flooding. So what happened is those areas were filled in, not particularly well, because now these dark blue splotches are showing us the low-lying areas. So 
realistically, if we were going to fill in these areas and develop on top of them, we would have done a little bit better to fill them in a little bit more, perhaps. Because right now we have all these areas in dark blue that are vulnerable to flooding. The August 20th storm, um, we can look at the precipitation totals here. It's kind of hard to see in this light, um, but essentially the dark green is areas that got less rain, zero to three inches. The lighter green has three to six inches, and we work our way up to the dark red on the west side is 12 to 15 inches of rain. Um, this is that same precipitation radar data that Ken showed in the previous slide, but it zoomed in on Madison and um, I was also given that by his assistant professor, um, Professor Dan Wright. So this is zoomed in a little bit more, so you can just see those large red areas that got 12 to 15 inches. Um, this is generally in the Pheasant Branch watershed, and any area within the purple line here, all of that is going to flow into Lake Mendota. Um, just for a reference, 12 to 15 inches of rain is a ton of rain. The storm that we would say we have a 1% chance of getting each day would be 6.6 .6 inches in 24 hours. So there are small localized areas where we had a lot, a lot of rain in the storm. So the city responded quickly to the flash flooding. Um, we had crews working overnight to respond to different issues throughout the city. Um, a very large one was this damage at Deming Way. As you can see, the road was blown out. You can see people in that hole their utilities exposed through there, um, and we got that fixed pretty quickly. We went out the next day, and everyone on city staff, whether you were a designer or you were, you know, an engineer or you were, you know, my manager, we all went and we were walking over different greenway systems. We were checking to see what damages were there, if there were any culverts, making sure that everything was safe for the public to be able to be living among these systems. There were areas where dirt was kind of pulled out from beneath sidewalks where culverts overtopped and water was flowing over the road going through some of these greenway systems that we have. Um, and as we were out doing this, we were also starting to think about the quantity of rain coming into the system and we were able to start beginning for the lake levels to come up. So it was a quick response to that flash flooding and then we were slowly able to turn around and say, now that we've started to address this, we can start looking at the isthmus. So this map shows the flood damages that we submitted to FEMA in a kind of our first round of reporting for what damages the city saw. Um, in the area in the box on the west side, those are generally flash flood damages. And then as you look across the isthmus, those dots show damage from high lake levels. This area shows the watersheds that John was talking about previously. Um, the areas striped on the north of this map are areas that drain into Lake Mendota, and then areas in the south are those areas that drain into Lake Monona and Wabisa. And now I'm going to do a little animation of those floodwaters coming up. Um, so Monona essentially, as John explained, will act as a bathtub and it will fill up as the water starts coming in. So any low-lying area, it's just going to expand and start filling into that. So if you were a bird hovering over the city of Madison from August 20th through, you know, now, you could see some of this happening. We're going to get a little bit more extreme in how high the water is going to come up here just to show you where the low-lying areas are. But as you click through, you can see kind of near Lake Wabisa and Lake Wingra, those low-lying marsh areas start to fill up. You can start seeing some blue in the middle of the isthmus here as the water's coming up. This is about where we got. And then this would be kind of the risk of flash flooding 
had the lakes come up even more, this would be the next level of those low-lying areas. So I think the areas in the black box are pretty intuitive that would flood if the lakes kept coming up. Um, and across the isthmus in the red box is a little bit less intuitive. So the isthmus in the middle, kind of along the East Wash Corridor, is low-lying. If you walk north towards Lake Mendota, you're going to walk up a hill. And if you walk south to Lake Monona, you're going to walk up a hill. So any water that falls in that area all kind of rushes into the East Wash Corridor. And that is the area on the map in the red box. Because of that, in order to develop it and have people live there harmoniously 99.9% .9 of the time, we put in storm sewers to take that water that's going to pool in the middle of the isthmus and it's going to drain it into the lake. The easiest way to drain it into the lake, because I was talking about both those hills, if you head north or if you head south, is all the way east along East Washington till you hit the Yahara River. So that's great. That works perfectly most of the time. However, if the Yahara River starts coming up and up, you end up with some of that water traveling back through those storm sewers into the street. So if you were trying to drive on East Johnson, if you were trying to drive on East Wash some days, if you were at Mifflin and Livingston, you would have seen this lake water coming back up through the sewers and into the street. which the city dealt with. We closed streets. We removed parking from Willie Street. We tried to make sure that everything functioned as close to normal as possible. Um, but there was this looming threat of what would happen if it was going to rain. Now our great, well-designed storm system that was going to pull water from the East Wash Corridor to the Ahara River is now full of water. So it's no longer that great open water slide to move water through. So if it starts raining, the rain's going to pool there as it comes in from all those areas that drain to the middle of the isthmus. And it's going to take a little while to push through. The Ohara River is going to have a little bit more rain on top of it as well, and eventually that will equalize. But this is that flash flooding risk that the city was super concerned about. So that was something that we were telling people, make sure that you're sandbagging if you're in these areas. You know, everyone is at risk, but it was hard to see the risk on the day when it was sunny, when, you know, the next day it might rain. So we were trying to be prepared make sure everyone knew that this was a risk that we were looking at. And then the other factor to all of this is groundwater. So generally groundwater will come to meet whatever body of water right at the edge of the shore and then kind of taper off. But as lakes and rivers come up, that pulls up the groundwater as well. Um, across the isthmus, when the isthmus was developed, it was generally filled with junk and sand and groundwater can very quickly move through that. Um, so people throughout the isthmus, I'm sure, have experienced that high groundwater impacting their basements. A lot of people who live on the isthmus, myself included, probably don't have the most watertight of basements because they're old and it's hard to patch them and have them work great. Um, so this is some of what you're seeing. That water slowly comes up and it's connecting to the other side on Lake Mendota, which is also higher. So it's being pulled up on both sides and you have that high water across the isthmus. Um, in the middle of the isthmus, it's a little bit slower to respond and will also be slower to recede. As you get closer to the lakes, it's a little bit quicker to respond. So people that live closer to any of the shorelines are probably experiencing this quicker than the others that live in the middle of the isthmus. Um, but this is something that people are experiencing as well. Um, so here we have the flood maps that we created. They're just 
when they were created, um, they were like two, three by three feet maps that we had printed out for our emergency operations command. So they take up a lot of data and sometimes they're a little bit slower to load. So let's make sure I didn't miss anything. All right. So here we have the isthmus, and I'm going to start to explain a little bit about how we came to create the maps that you guys all saw posted on the City of Madison's website about flooding. Um, throughout the isthmus, the area to the north that's in green here is all area that drains to Johnson Street, more or less, through the storm sewer network. The area in yellow is all area that drains to East Wash or Main Street. So these areas immediately were experiencing higher water levels than we anticipated based on the analysis that we had done having lake levels come up. So as John was doing a really great job managing the lakes and trying to slowly take water out of Mendota into Monona, you were seeing a large gradient across the river. So the river was at a higher elevation than the lake. And that is why we were seeing larger amounts of flooding on Johnson Street and on East Wash a little bit quicker than in other areas. So this map here shows in the dark blue the max extents of flooding that we experienced across the isthmus and across the city of Madison from high lake levels. Um, Main Street or Johnson Street got up to 849.4. Main Street got up to 849.2. Lake Monona at its max was about a foot beneath that at 848.5. Um, the area in a lighter blue through there is the area that we thought might end up flash flooding. So let's see if this loads slowly. If not, this is the same map um, with this little screenshot of a very terrifying looking storm that passed over just north and just south of the city on August 28th. So this is something that we were concerned about and one of the reasons why we were saying this could flash flood significantly if we get a large storm on top of what we'd already experienced. Luckily, in 2017, um, the head city engineer and my boss both kind of put their heads together and said, all right, we braved high lake levels in 2000. We braved high lake levels in 2008. Realistically, this is going to be worse at some point, and we should spend some time and energy trying to figure out how we can mitigate this and how we can be as prepared as possible. So for the past year and a half, I've been working citywide with emergency management and with other divisions to try to figure out how we can be as prepared as possible for high lake level flooding. In November of last year, we did a tabletop exercise, um, which is something that our emergency management division does. And we get all the city agencies together and we brainstorm different issues that maybe some agencies wouldn't think of right away that others may have more experience with. So community development, for example, had a bunch of high risk populations across the isthmus that we were trying to figure out, you know, how we would make sure that they were safe and how we would have extra resources to move people that maybe couldn't quickly move. Um, we also looked at a utility plan, trying to figure out where vulnerabilities were. We met with MGE, we were working with MMSD, trying to figure out if we have these high lake levels, how is this going to impact utilities, not only throughout the isthmus, but throughout the city and throughout the region. Um, the city installed generators above the max flood stage at a lot of our pump stations to make sure that our sanitary sewer kept working if lake levels would come up. We tried to look at the impact of a lot of infiltration that we would experience as groundwater came up and how that might impact people. Um, the fire department had an Aspire intern who had his master's in meteorology and was getting his PhD in emergency management. It's like a superhero intern. Um, who worked on taking all of our engineering information and trying to translate it into general public speak 
because um, we had a bunch of this from different situations we'd had in the past, but we didn't quite have it in the format for the public to be able to easily digest it in one location. Um, and then we also did a critical elevation survey. So we had surveyors go out and all the different critical facilities throughout the city, we had surveyed to see if the water level came up to X point, would a certain thing be submerged and be problematic? So we were able to say, all right, the water's coming up. We think it might get up to here. We need to make sure that, you know, well 14 on the isthmus is sandbagged to make sure that their control panel isn't going to be submerged and different pieces like that. And then we also began a debris management plan. So now we're going to talk a little bit about what the city was able to do, and then we'll talk about the specific response to the event. So when something like this happens, the city focuses immediately on protecting critical infrastructure, making sure that the public is aware of what's going on, trying to help the public as much as possible, coordinating volunteer efforts, um, and keeping people and property safe. As John explained very well, we can't control the amount of water coming into the lakes. We can't control the amount of water moving through the system very well at a moment's notice. Um, and as John also explained, the county was doing the best that they could to slowly raise water levels on Monona so that people could begin to prepare for water coming up. They weren't just going to open up the dams and have all the water rush through and say, all right, good luck with this. The water was slowly coming up, which allowed people to begin sandbagging to get volunteers where they were needed. We had the National Guard come in. And with that, we'll talk a little bit about specifically what the city did. Um, as I said, there was a lot of sandbagging. We worked on critical infrastructure. We worked on people's homes. We had engineering staff on the ground going home to home around the Isthmus area, making sure that people were sandbagging, not only to a level that we thought was appropriate, but in a way that would actually hold and last. Um, we had to armor the John Nolan shore here. So as you can see, because the lakes were so high and there was wave action, it started eating away at the shoreline, which put the bike path and the road at risk. Um, and that was right in the middle of the Ironman. So we went out and we added rock to armor the shoreline. We made sure that our manholes were sealed with rubber and sandbags on top. Most of them had already previously been waterproofed. Um, but making sure that we were double checking and didn't want the sanitary system to be negatively impacted. We're able to use that critical elevation survey that we had done to prioritize what work we were doing. As I explained earlier, we closed roads and removed parking from other roads to make sure that people could move throughout the isthmus as needed. There are a bunch of people that work in the isthmus area that needed to be able to get in. Part of that involved keeping the bike path open by the Monona Terrace, um, putting in some sandbags there and pumping out that water to make sure that we could have people come and go as was necessary. Um, there was a lot of public outreach. We had the National Guard helping us. We had volunteer coordination. Um, and then looking into the future after this event and trying to kind of come down and figure out what we might need in the future to make this an even easier event to deal with. Um, we're trying to assess the feasibility of building infrastructure to reroute our storm sewers during high lake levels. So like I was saying, all that water drains from East Washington to the Ohara River, but the Ohara River was higher than Lake Monona. So trying to figure out if there's a way that we can install some infrastructure to turn a valve, block that off, and have it drain to Lake Monona directly for a period of time. Those are some things that we're going to look at. Um, we are currently in the midst 
of having Johnson Street plans done to reconstruct that area of Johnson Street by Tenney Park. So we're trying to figure out how we can raise that up an additional eight or nine inches so that in the same event it wouldn't flood. Um, and we're looking at getting a public information officer to specifically be in charge with doing that outreach. Um, city engineering did a great job coordinating messaging and we worked a lot with IT, which did a really great job of helping us get that word out. Fire department and parks all have PIOs as do other divisions within the city. So it became a little bit more evident as we had an engineer on staff 24 seven doing a PIO position. That, that was something that might be necessary. Um, a little bit more about sandbags. We provided 225,000 sandbags over the course of the past month. Um, city staff worked 13 days, 24-7 on call to put in those protective measures. We had the National Guard deployed. The estimated costs of these protective measures are about $900,000. Um, and a removal plan is developed and we are waiting to deploy it and let people know when it's safe to remove those sandbags and what that process will be as soon as we feel as though the risk has abated significantly. Um, here are some nice pictures of sandbags. <laughs> and that's all I got. Very informative. Thank you, Jojo. Next up, we have Yogesh Kuala. Did I get your last name right? Chavla. Sorry. I always call you by your first name. So um, He is serving his first term on the Dane County Board um, and is the supervisor for District 6, which includes my neighborhood. Um, welcome. He's going to tell us some follow-up information, Yogesh. Come on up. Projector over there. It should just be a PDF. That's okay. I might walk over and do a little. Uh, I might scroll down on it. Uh, so first off, I want to welcome everybody. I'm uh, Yogesh Chabla. I'm the Dane County Board Supervisor in District Six, and I know. Over the last uh, six to eight weeks, a lot of you have been feeling a lot of anxiety. You've been watching the weather closely. You've probably been going into your basement a lot and draining your basement a lot, and you've had a lot of concern for not only yourself and your family, but and for your property as well. So thanks for hanging in on this process. And um, us as a county board and uh, the county exec's office, we're really interested in how we can deliver solutions to keep our community resilient and to make sure that we are prepared for uh, future flooding events. A um, little bit about my background. I come from a criminal justice background, and a lot of the approaches we take to solve criminal justice issues are data-driven. And if you think about what is one of the richest data sets that we have out there, and that's weather. Weather is one of the largest public data sets that we have. And thanks to a lot of the great work the county has been doing, we have a lot of great information on lake levels and on flow through our system, and we have this over the last 10 or 15 years. So as we go forward and we look to find solutions to these problems, one thing that puts us in a really advantageous position is all the data that we have. And uh, in addition to that, the, the great scientific community we have here, particularly through the University of Wisconsin. So Going forward, we're in a really strong position to take this on. And also, I'm an IT guy, so I, I really encourage you to go visit Infos Yahara. 
you can get so much great information about lake levels, about flows. You can see pictures of dams. And I frequently was referencing uh, that website when I was communicating uh, with my constituents just so they can make sure to, to know uh, what exactly was going on. So, you know, just a little background here. The DNR sets a broad range for where our lakes can be managed. Within this broad range, the county has a six-inch range from which we can manage the lakes. And the current policy is to manage those lakes at the median of that six-inch range. So when you think about it, the county does have some authority, but it's in the broader context of what the state is offering. Um, so as a result of this flooding, one of the things that we thought was really important to do was to say, well, what is our path forward? And one of the most important things about our path forward as lawmakers is to put put forward some good policy. So I want to emphasize, I want to highlight what we did here. We came up with Resolution 227, and there's a lot of people who worked on this resolution. Um, I'll name a few of them. Uh, Pam Porter, who is the chair of the Lakes and Watershed Commission. We have supervisors here, Mary Kolar, uh, Heidi Weigleitner, who just walked in, Tanya Buckingham's in the back. Uh, my friend Richard Kilmer is here as well. So this has been a real collaborative effort, and this resolution that you see in front of us uh, is going to be in front of the full county board tomorrow, and I anticipate almost unanimous support for that. And the reason I think we're going to get that is because there was such a consensus that went into it. It just passed unanimously through the Lakes and Watershed Commission and through the Environment, Ag, and Natural Resources Committee. And that's a committee that I sit on. I'm one of five people on there. And I was happy to see that that unanimously passed. So let's get into the details. What does this resolution actually do? So I'm going to scroll down just a little. Which is going to be my scroller. Thank you. So, yeah, if we scroll down a little bit, um, we can go to the uh, whereas clauses. So the, the first two that I want to emphasize here are we're putting together a technical work group. And the technical work group is going to have some of our best scientists on it. And what that technical work group is going to do is they're going to come up with a series of recommendations. And we wanted this process to be expedited. We didn't want it to take uh, an inordinate amount of time. So we are going to get recommendations from this technical work group by February 1st. So just to, let's, let's put that in context. So we'll have recommendations before we have a Super Bowl champion. So before the football season is over. As a result of those recommendations we have, those recommendations are going to be brought to ENER and uh, Lakes and Watershed Commission. And we are going to come up with some specific policies to act on those recommendations. And as part of that, it could be petitioning the DNR to have different lake levels. Now, if you think about it, these lake levels were set in 1979. I was three years old in 1979. I was living in Detroit, Michigan. It was a long time ago. I'm old and gray now, and we know how much our climate has changed, and we know how much uh, Dane County has changed. If you drove through Dane County in 1979, it would look a lot different than it did now, even if you think about the uh, amount of development that we've had uh, within the last year. So if we could just scroll down to the last whereas clause, and this is something that I felt uh, just a little bit more. I think it's a two-pager. Um, so one thing that I felt uh, really strongly about was uh, that we needed to manage our lakes at their state-mandated minimums, and we needed to keep them – we needed to work to get them to the minimums as soon as possible, and we are going to work to maintain the lakes at that level until the county board acts on recommendations from the task force. I think that specific language is very important to have in there. 
We are going to do everything we can to get our lakes down to their seasonal minimums. When they are at their seasonal minimums, we are going to work to keep them there, and they're going to stay there until we act on these recommendations. So I think that's a, a very important thing to have in there. And what I want to emphasize is we have a strong partnership between the county board and the county exec's office. We have uh, John Reimer and Laura Hicklin here from uh, the Land and Water Department, and we're going to work in partnership with them. And the county executive has uh, come out with an $18 million budget specifically to look at how we can increase flow through the system. Having policies isn't good enough. We need to have a way to implement those policies. And as John was emphasizing earlier today, flow through the system is uh, very important to do that. So some components we have here, one is land acquisition. The more land we can keep undeveloped, the more we can get the, the water to go directly into the ground and not into our watershed. So that's an, a very important part. We also have to look at removing debris and these constrictions throughout the system uh, so we can increase the flow going through. We're going to have some money in there for uh, additional weed harvesters and there's also a real public safety component to this that we have to carefully consider as well. So we're going to be looking at upgrades to our 911 system. So when we have an event like this or any other kind of emergency, we had an active shooter emergency uh, recently in Middleton. We want to make sure 911, our primary way to contact our first responders, that that system does not get overwhelmed. So there will be upgrades uh, to the 911 system. There will also be uh, some money in there to get uh, some aquatic hovercraft or watercraft, so if there needs to be uh, uh, a rescue that's done in a, a flood-prone area, we'll have the equipment to do that. So the last thing I really want to emphasize here is the importance of the community. You guys have all come out uh, on a, what is tonight, a Wednesday night. You could be at home watching baseball. You could watch the Yankees lose the Oakland A's, and you know, uh, but you're here, which I think is uh, very important. We're going to have a series of public meetings coming up through uh, Ener and Lakes and Watershed. Tomorrow, County Board is going to be working to pass the resolution that you see right here. So when you show up and when you advocate for what you think the best solutions are, that's when uh, progress really gets made. So your voice is important. Uh, lastly, I want to thank the – I want to give a special thanks to uh, the City of Madison and to my uh, mentor and friend, Marsha Rummel, here um, over the last uh, six weeks, we've had a lot of requests to the city of Madison. We asked them, we were one of the first uh, places to ask them to provide some sandbags for uh, Yahara Riverview Apartments along uh, the Yahara River. The city the next day uh, had those ready to go with materials and with uh, people to help fill them. So I thought that was really important. There's other things. My, my daughter, who's in the back doing her homework, goes to school at Marquette. We wanted to have safe passage for those students, so the city extended uh, how long the lights would be, the walk lights would be across Baldwin, provided crossing guards, and, uh, you know, a lot of the work they did in that capacity was really important. So we want to thank the city of Madison. I also want to thank, um, you know, Dane County here. There was some periods during this process where there was some information going around uh, about potential dam failures, and on top of the the real anxiety, there was a lot more perceived anxiety because of uh, some bad information going out. And Dane County worked efficiently to, to correct what was out there and to work efficiently to get good information to the community. And also in case uh, we were going to have any kind of failure in our infrastructure, they had solid backup plans in place 
to deal with that immediately. And I think that speaks a lot to the foresight and planning that we have here. So uh, in conclusion, uh, I'm very confident tomorrow we're going to have near unanimous support to pass this resolution. The resolution is just something on a piece of paper. The implementation of that resolution is where we're going to need your help as a community. And based off the turnout tonight and what I've seen at other events, I'm sure uh, a lot of you guys are going to turn up and you're going to be uh, advocating really hard for what you think is the best position. So thank you. Okay. Well, thank you, Yogesh. Um, what time is that meeting tomorrow? Seven o'clock. Seven o'clock, okay. At the city county building. Second floor, right? Yes, all right. Well, thank you very much. Um, well, our panel has done such an excellent job. I've been crossing off some of the questions that you've already answered from, from our, our group, but um, your microphones should be working. Um, so I will start with some of the questions. If there are other questions, uh, you guys have your forms, the, the white form. Um, you're welcome to give them to Amanda or to Lynn, who's walking around. Um, and then also, don't forget the yellow forms that talk a little bit about uh, suggestions for next steps. Um, so our first question is for JoJo. Um, we've had a lot of questions about sandbags. Um, and as you said, the uh, yes, the sandbags that you so nicely photographed for us. Um, the city website recommends keeping sandbags in place on the isthmus, and you talked about that. Um, what is the benchmark that you're going to use before recommending removal? And where do we return the bags if we don't want to wait for city pickup? Um, can everyone hear me okay? Can everyone hear me better now? Yeah. Perfect. Um, so the first suggestion from the city is to wait to keep your sandbags in place. We do not feel as though we are out of the woods. Um, with a significant amount of rain in the forecast and just over the coming weeks, if I, we suggest keeping your sandbags in place. Um, if you want to remove your sandbags, you have two different options. One is you can split the bags and put the bag into your garbage and then spread the sand on your property. You cannot put the sandbags into your garbage or to your, into your recycling bin. The city machines are not able to pick those up. Um, so make sure that you do not do that. The third option is to drop your sandbags off to one of the locations where you picked your sandbags up. So on the city website, if you go to cityofmadison.com slash engineering slash sandbags, you can get to a map that shows all the different locations of where sandbag materials were able to be collected, and you can also go place those back there. Um, when the city feels as though we are no longer at risk. Um, that will be at some point where we're below the 100-year lake level. Recently, we dropped below the 100-year lake level and then came back up, which is why we had not suggested that we implement removal of the sandbags yet. Um, so at some point, we do not have a hard and fast number. Once we hit that, we're going to run around and grab them. But once we start getting a little bit below the 100-year, we will let everyone know we have a system in place where we're going to come around and do some collection. It's going to be based on areas, and there is specific messaging that will go out when that time comes. So stay tuned. Otherwise, visit the city engineering website to figure out where you can return those. Okay, thank you. I think the next question would be for Ken. Um, for those of us who live where the water table is so high, is putting in rain gardens or making our driveways perme permeable worth doing? Won't this make our basements more wet? 
Uh, yes, probably. So I, you do have to – if you have high groundwater, uh, you probably don't want to be adding to that. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, the committee I chaired is, really wants to look at uh, strategies that we know will work at larger scales. And, and so we, do, we don't want you putting in rain gardens that are going to create problems for you. Uh, instead, and for future development, we're hoping that – if it's not a good place to, to put rain gardens in, there'll be some fees. They'll be used to do things where they'll work. So I, I think that's uh, pretty clear. You don't want to be raising groundwater if it's creating a basement flooding problem. And so infiltration practices in that case are probably not a good idea. Okay, thank you. Um, John, so I believe there's one lake on the system that is not a uh, or one dam in the system that is not county controlled. Can you talk about that at all? Um, yeah, so the Har Lake starts at, at Mendota, which is Tenney Dam. Dane County operates and owns that one. Then we go to Monona, Wabisa. There's no dam in between Monona, Wabisa. At Wabisa is Babcock Dam. That's owned and operated by Dane County. Then we go to Lake Caganza. Which is called, which the outlet of Lake Caganza's La Follette Dam, that's owned and operated by Dane County. Then, as we go further downstream, the Ahara River in City of Stoughton, there's the Stoughton Dam, which is owned and operated by the City of Stoughton. Then the next one after that is the Dunkirk Dam, which is owned um, by the the Dunkirk Lake District, and it's operated by a, by a, a, um, private um, somebody that's private that's generating electricity from it. So um, on the Hara Lakes, Dane County owns and operates them, and further downstream, they're owned and operated by different entities. And is the operation of those other dams an issue for us, or, or you know, how is that coordination? Yeah, so, so the, the coordination works when we have dams. The upstream dam operator lets the downstream owner know the changes you're making. So, for example, at La Follette Dam, since we own – and operate all the ones upstream, it would be La Follette Dam to let City of Stoughton know, hey, we're opening now, um, please be prepared for it, and then they have to uh, um, make adjustments and accommodate. Likewise, Stoughton Dam then lets Dunkirk Dam. It doesn't work from the downstream up and say, hey, you can't give me more water. It starts from the d upstream and works its way down. Okay, thank you. Um, Yogesh, there were several questions about the um, county executive's budget that was recently released with the $18 million. Um, You did talk about that. You talked about wheat harvesters and, and the 911 system. Is there anything else that you'd like to add so we really get a complete picture of um, what's in that budget and what that can do for the situation? Yeah, and, you know, like we were talking about before, you know, getting water out of the system is what we have to prioritize. And there's no one way to do that. We have to take a multitude of different approaches to do that. Now, the, the budget is right now we're, we're in our budget deliberation period. So uh, this is my first time going through uh, the budget cycle from the inside. So I'm, I'm learning a little bit about the process now. So the county exec has proposed uh, that $18 million budget, and it's mainly focused on flow and what are the different approaches we can take to get to the numbers that – we need to get to because the situation right now is we need to get from these really elevated lake levels and we need to get to close to our winter minimum so we can be ready in the springtime so when the snow melts 
and comes into the system, and when the spring rains come, that we have the capacity to handle those. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do... I'll do a little update. I have a website I maintain uh, where I do constituent updates. I'll give a little more details on the county executive's budget, and I'll, I'll talk to his office, and we'll get you more specifics um, on that on that process as well. He had a really detailed document he came out with uh, before press release uh, last week, and that goes into the nitty-gritty details of, of all that, and I'll make sure to post that online, uh, if not tonight, then tomorrow. Thank you. Um, John? We've had uh, some questions about the, the range, and I think we talked about the six-inch range, that range that the lakes can be managed. Um, can we just manage our lakes right now until something happens with the DNR to the, to the summer minimum, um, and, and would that help the situation? So, so the range is six inches. Um, my cell phone here is five inches and nine-sixteenths. So... This is the range we Thank have. Thank you the, for that visual. We That's have the work from is this range right here, okay? Um, on our huge bodies of water with all this water coming in. So that's what we have to work with. Um, as you saw from my plot, we're we're there when we don't get as much rain. So um, and, and in you know in all. Um, in terms of our summer minimum, I don't want to give anyone the false expectation on our summer minimums. We're gonna move as much water as we can to get there in the spring. To give an example, in the June 08 event, that was in June 08, we weren't as high as we are now. Also, we're later in the year now. We didn't even get, we just got below summer max in, in that springtime. We're in October, that was in June. We're higher now than we were then. So to get the summer minimum, it's going to be a challenge to get there in the spring. So I don't want to give anyone the false expectation that we're going to be there and we're going to manage within this range. Um, it's, it's a difficult task to do. Um, and those dams are going to be wide open pretty much the whole time. So I, I, when I say those dams, I mean Babcock and La Follette, not Tenney. So, so I did just get a question on that. Um, how feasible is it we will get close to that, that low level in the next two months? So um, those dams will be open, and whatever water can get out is going to get out. So okay, we won't be anywhere close to those in the next two months. We should level right. set. Um, and so yeah, nowhere close. <laughs> um, Ken, what can be done to significantly reduce the amount of runoff? Um, practical, concrete ideas and ways to implement them would be welcome. Well, you know, obviously urbanization is is the only thing we can control. Urbanized areas, climate is doing what it's going to do. Uh, so, you know, I, I outlined some things at large scales. I think we can do with those internally drained areas to, to store water. Uh, I think we have to look at good opportunities for infiltration. A lot of that could be done in conjunction with phosphorus control, for example, so we can get double benefits. Uh, but I, th I think the, the larger scale things are going to be most effective. I think. The, the small, like I said before, the small rain garden in a house is is nice, but it, <clears throat> it would take millions of those. So uh, I think it's a scale issue, and, and then trying to get double benefits or triple benefits. Hey, thank you, um, Jojo. How might the city redesign the stormwater system um, so that it can prevent flash floods and accommodate some of the situations that we've had? Um, there's, there's other parts to this question, but we'll start with that one. 
Um, so currently in the Isthmus area, the largest sewer that we could put beneath the road is currently beneath the road. So that's accommodating flash floods very well when we don't have high lake levels. As I mentioned during the presentation, we're going to look at how we can kind of close off that system and run water out into Lake Mendota so we have a little bit more control when the lakes are high, because inevitably something like this will happen again. Um, so we're going to try to figure out how and when we would be able to do that. And that's the isthmus. Um, as you start heading to other parts of the city, different areas were developed with different stormwater standards. Um, back in the 50s and 60s, pipes weren't necessarily sized for specific events. So we're going to end up going back through. We're creating a form right now to collect all the data for different areas that flooded throughout the city from the August 20th storm. And then from there, we're going to try to figure out how we can fix certain issues, whether it be finding areas to detain more water, creating larger, replacing and putting in larger pipes in some areas, or finding some better overflows. Um, we will have to be careful that we do not create more problems downstream, because if water is in someone's basement right now, that means it's not in the next person's basement down the way. Um, so it will be a significant challenge, um, and we're starting to try to kind of piece together how we're going to tackle this. The storm did show us a lot of issues within the system, but it was a really extreme storm. So we're finding ways and creating a policy to try to prioritize which problems we fix, people that flood frequently, um, things that have the highest cost-benefit ratio, so trying to think about ways to increase infiltration and some of the things that Ken was talking about. If that's going to help us solve a problem and it's going to be the most cost-effective way as opposed to doing something a couple miles down the way that would be different and more expensive, that's going to help us try to figure out what to do as well. So we're just starting to kind of get a feel for everything that is wrong um, and go from there. Okay, thank you. The, the second part of that question, I'll just keep you, yeah. keep you on, um, what changes could be made to curb and gutter to accommodate and increase runoff? Um, so currently the curb and gutter generally works pretty well to convey up to that storm that we have a 1% chance of happening. Um, generally the issues would be once you get to a pipe that can no longer hold that amount of water. Um, there are some areas where if we look at developing to a 0.2% storm or a 500-year storm, um, we might look at needing to raise the curb a little bit more to convey that amount of water. But at that point, you start having issues with narrow terraces and driveway grades. So to bring, you know, from the top of the curb and the sidewalk down to the road and having a larger curb, you start to hit some limitations there, um, especially in areas that have a shorter terrace. So currently, we do not feel as though the curb and gutter is the limiting factor in most areas. Um, it is the general storm infrastructure. Thank you. Yogesh, I'm thinking this one's for you. Um, what schedule has been set for the technical group and public input, period? Yeah. If no schedule has been set, who and when will and when will a schedule be established? Yeah, so we're looking to get the uh, recommendations from the technical work group by, I think it's February 1st. It's the last Friday. Um, I think January 31st was a Thursday, so we said February 1st. And, um, you know, uh, if you if you look into like the university professors we're going to work with, 
There's some winter breaks there. There's a little changeover. So we wanted to give them time, uh, at least the beginning of the, of the next semester, to get that going. Now, we're going to have a pretty quick turnaround. We're going to have two months from when we receive these recommendations to when we have actual policy recommendations for what we want to see implemented. So I'm anticipating February 31st to March 31st is going to be a really busy time for the county board to really look at uh, solutions for putting this forward. Um, now, in terms of public meetings, we're going to be announcing probably in the next day or two a series of public meetings over the next few months at uh, our county board uh, committee, uh, Ener and Lakes and Watershed. Um, and I want to let you guys know a lot of the work that gets done in the county actually happens at the standing committees, and Ener is one of seven standing committees. And the work that the standing committees do, the, the county board as a whole will take that, will weigh that very heavily. So as we go forward and we're working through this committee process, that's going to be a real place where we're going to need uh, the input from the community, and that's where we're really going to be working hard on, on these policy recommendations. And there's one thing that's happening in parallel to, to this. There's a task force that was formed called the Healthy Farms, Healthy Lakes Task Force, and their charge was to look at uh, phosphorus that has been really getting into our lakes. Prior to the flooding, uh, a lot of the, the toxic algae blooms were one of the hottest issues that we saw. And there's a lot of synergy between lake levels and uh, phosphorus levels when we talk about some of the, 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 the things that we can do uh, with our rural partners out there. There's some cost share programs where the state and the county and the federal government can provide money for harvestable buffer strips for cover crops. Um, also to look at different tilling practices. So when you look at sustainable farming practices, that has a direct impact on how much water is getting into our watershed as well. So going forward, I anticipate that we're going to be putting forth policy that's not only going to look at uh, stormwater um, and lake levels, but also that's going to look at how we can keep the phosphorus uh, out of the water, uh, out of our uh, lakes as well. So there's going to be a lot of synergy there, so definitely keep an eye on that. Okay, thank you. JoJo, <laughs> most of these questions seem to have your name on them. Um, has the city estimated the economic impact of the damage resulting from future flooding, uh, including the possible breach or failure of the Tenney Dam? Um, we do not have that estimate. I could leave it at that. Um, the... <laughs> Flood damage on the west side from the flash flooding caused for private private damages currently reported are about 17 million as they stand. Um, throughout the isthmus, there was not a ton of damage due to the high lake levels, um, and we have not done an analysis on what a dam breach would look like. So, and just just you know, the, the county did recently within the last few years invest a lot of money. Uh, into the Tenney Dam, and we have uh, full confidence in that uh, in that dam. It's a it's structurally sound, and water might go over it, but we're not worried about uh, the failure of it. So, uh, just so you know, I mean, we might get a situation where there's so much water in Lake Mendota, where the dam it'll go over the dam, but structurally, we don't have any concerns about uh, any amount of water causing any uh, infrastructure uh, challenges there. Thank you. Um, I guess this is going to be the last question because we're getting pretty close to the end here. Um, Jojo, again, regarding the possible uh, raising of Johnson Street 
by several inches. I think you said eight or nine inches. Um, what's the timeline for that decision? Will changes be reviewed with property owners assessing effects on driveway access, drainage, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have limited knowledge on this. Um, from what I understand is that the design of the street had already been done by a consultant in that in lieu of these flooding events, um, we've asked them to see if they can raise it and we're trying to figure out if that would make sense and then reaching out to property owners to see how that would work. Um, based on conversations that I had with the engineer that's working with Strand, it sounds like it can be done and would not impact driveways and drainage significantly, but there might be a couple of tweaks that need to be done, but this overall, the benefit would be positive and that it would work out for that neighborhood. Um, but they are still looking at, the design is not complete and they're trying to figure that out. I think construction is scheduled for next year. Thank you. Um, so to bring things, to bring things to a close, I'd like to thank everybody for coming out tonight and showing your concern um, on these flooding issues and your and I would like to thank our panelists for, for coming and spending their evening with us and sharing their information. Um, also, again, the Sassy Neighborhood Association, the Marquette Neighborhood Association, and the Tenny Lapham Neighborhood Association that have kind of come together um, to really create this forum as a start, a starting point to discuss flooding issues. Um, we'd also like to thank the City Channel for broadcasting this this evening and the Senior Center for giving us a discounted rate on our room rental. We very much appreciate that. Um, some people that have, have worked on this significantly, Amanda White um, and Pam Porter, who's here somewhere in the back, I think. Yes, thank you very much for all of your coordination and your, your efforts on this. Um, I would like to remind everyone to sign in. Uh, we are going to be using those emails uh, for lists, for information, for talking about next steps and that type of thing. Um, we will also send you the link to the City Channel where you can give this to others or watch it again should you have that desire. Um, and we will, we will try to answer your questions. Um, if we didn't get to them tonight, we will be keeping our lists and sharing them with people and, and trying to just really keep this dialogue going and talking about ne next steps on what we can do to improve the situation. Um, and again, the yellow forms are the next steps. The white forms are the questions. Look through my notes here, make sure I didn't forget anything. Yes, remind people to sign in so they get on the list. I'll keep, I'll do that again. Um, yeah, so yes. Sure, you can send questions in later and we will try to get them to the right person or to the next forum. We're not quite sure what the next forum is gonna be on this. It might be that the city or the county that this just kind of moves on to its natural place in, in local government. Um, so, but we will definitely continue collecting your questions and passing them on to the right entity. So having your, your emails um, and a quick way to contact you for the next meetings and any other you know, possible legislative action or, or things like that are just a great resource for us to have. So again, thank you for coming. Thank the panelists.